Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. Today we have with us John France, a franchise business resale specialist. John is a little unique in the business brokerage world because he specializes in working with franchise systems and with franchisees who are getting ready to exit their franchise business and with franchisors who are seeking new franchise partners to take over existing franchise locations of their franchise systems. The first transaction that John shares with us today is where he was engaged by a fitness business franchisee of a national franchise fitness center. As the franchisee accepted an offer from a qualified buyer, he was excited to be stepping away from his business so that he could pursue other business opportunities. I want you to listen closely to what this franchise owner did even before the sale closed escrow, which I wouldn't recommend that anyone do that is listening to this transactional story. Next, John shares how a buyer of a 19-unit franchise business fitness center hired a firm that specializes in performing due diligence for buyers and how this buyer invested over $100,000 with this firm. Normally, when a buyer invests this much money in doing due diligence in a transaction, they are generally very committed to seeing the transaction through to closing. Find out what happens when this buyer walked away from the business and why. John then shares how some franchises of national brands such as McDonald's often acquire other franchise systems and brands and the reasons behind this multi-brand franchise strategy. Then John explains why franchisors are often unable to help their franchisee business partners exit their business and why franchisees are often much better off in finding an expert like John to help them sell their business versus working with the franchisor to help sell their business. I want you to know that even though you don't own a franchise, there are some real business insights and great takeaways from this episode that will apply to almost any business. This is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast, and today we have a special treat with us today. We have John France. Uh, John is a specialist in the franchise sector. Uh, he only works with franchise companies and systems, as well as with franchisee owners and partners uh, to those franchise systems, helping them position their companies for an exit. So we're going to chat a little bit with John here today. So first, before we get started, John, would you just introduce yourself, talk about where you're located, and just a, a little bit about uh, your specialty here? Sure, sure. Thanks for having me, Marvin. I appreciate it. So I own Franchise Clearly, and we are a franchise brokerage. We only sell franchises. Uh, I've been doing this for about 15 years. We are located in Winter Park, Florida, just north of Orlando. And we sell nationwide. We sell, uh, we even had a deal close in Hawaii uh, last month. 
Well, that's great. Uh, I'm kind of excited about this because I understand a little bit about the world of franchising. And I think a lot of uh, the audience that listens to us, we know, I know that we have, you know, both franchise companies that listen to this uh, podcast as well as, you know, franchise partners and, and franchisees out there and some area developers and, you know, people that have fairly large scale uh, franchise companies that they deal with. So let's just kind of jump in and talk about some transaction here that have some unique twists and turns to it that I think our audience may uh, gain some insight to if they are a franchisee owner and are looking to position their companies for an exit. So why don't you share a transaction about uh, something or a, a story that has some interesting insights into it. Sure, sure, absolutely. So yeah, this one, uh, I was working with a particular seller and we were working on two of his fitness center franchises. And this was back in 2015. We had one under contract for 1.2 million and the second location was under contract for right around a million. So was the uh, person that was acquiring them the same person, or were they two different people? It was it was two different people, I believe, uh, but they were closing right around the about the same time period. And the particular seller called me up as the buyers are going through their due diligence. the The seller called me up on a Thursday night, and he said, "Hey, John, what's the chance this these deals not going through?" And I, I kind of laughed, and I, I, uh, I think I right away I asked him why, and uh, uh, he he said basically he said I'm I'm I've got a flight tomorrow I'm flying to Atlanta and I'm shopping for a Ferrari, and I I warned him I said hey you know don't don't spend the dollars if you don't have them uh, you, you never know with with this business because there's so many things that could go wrong uh, that's out of our control there's there's so many third parties involved. So when you talk about third parties, you're talking about lenders and people like that, that uh, you you really have no no control over. And I suppose if you're talking about fitness centers, you also have landlords that are involved unless the buildings were owned by him. Yeah. Yep. We have we have landlords. We have lenders. Uh, we have the franchisor themselves. Uh, and then there's other things out of out of control, too. Uh, you know, just last year, uh, the covid shutdowns. Uh, we've had government shutdowns where the SBA uh, can't fund. So there's a lot of things that could go wrong. Uh, in this particular transaction, that was a Thursday night. Uh, I warned him. I, I warned him, let's, uh, you know, don't, don't spend your dollars until you have them. So he's, he's on the plane off to Atlanta looking for a bright red Ferrari, I guess, or <laughs> yeah, yeah. maybe a red one or a black one. So and I, he didn't tell me if he went or not. But the next night, it was a Friday night sitting at home and I got a text late at night. And all it said was I pulled the trigger and it was several pictures of this brand new. I think it was like a four hundred thousand dollar Ferrari. Uh, it. it Ended up, the transactions ended up going uh, smooth enough. We, we closed them. So he was happy in the end. So he went out and bought the Ferrari. I can imagine that would put a lot of stress to make car payments on a $400,000 Ferrari if the transactions didn't close. Right. What were some of the things that sort of came up during the transaction that uh, caused some heartburn? I would imagine it was a stressful situation for him if if the deals did get hold, held up in, in the closing process. It, it was. So the lender, during this transaction, the lender 
they they need to confirm the tax returns. They they need to uh, pull tax transcripts. And the lender uh, on a Friday contacted us and basically said, "Hey, we we can't find the tax transcripts." So for our audience, just for a little bit of background on this, almost any lender. Uh, was this an SBA finance? Yeah, this uh, mo- most of our deals go through the SBA seven A process. So this was going. This was one of those deals going through that process. And they always request the tax returns every every single time. Yeah, and we can't close until they get those. And 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 getting those transcripts isn't generally an overnight situation. It takes weeks. You know, you're dealing with the government bureaucracy here, and it takes a long time. Right, and and we've had deals where in the past where other issues have come up, and but we've always been able to find them and, and access them. This particular one, the lender came back and said, "Hey, we're we're not going to be able to." It was going to push out closing like another six weeks, and fortunately, I went on LinkedIn that night. I remember going on LinkedIn late night, and I found uh, a company out of out of South Florida that I don't know how they were able to do it, but within. I think it was by noon on Monday they had the tax transcripts, so we were able to close. But uh, it, it causes a lot of anxiety for the seller. This particular seller, uh, I think he called me up during that process, and he he said uh, that he had a, he he evidently punched his fridge. He had a dent, <laughs> dent in his fridge. Well, I can understand. He's got a four hundred thousand dollar Ferrari to pay for, and yeah, the deal's right. not closing. And it's you know these deals don't always close. You know for a lot of different yeah, reasons, yeah. and. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I can imagine that's really stressful. And, uh, you know, sometimes people put holes in the wall, you know, with their fists yeah. because they get so frustrated because the due diligence process is a highly stressful situation because it's like getting a, a colonoscopy, a financial colonoscopy, you know? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. So in the end, it, it all worked out. He he was happy. Uh, he, he even in his testimonial, he said we, we made him a multimillionaire, but uh, both both transactions closed and and he was able to enjoy his Ferrari. Well, I'm glad for him. <laughs> anyway, so if we were to look at this, you know, for those out there that, uh, you know, have franchises and, uh, you know, they have to deal with the franchisor, um, you know, I guess the big takeaway here is is that you really don't want to count your eggs before they're hatched. Um, you know, because so many things can go wrong in, in a transaction. Things totally outside of your control. Is that what you would tell someone who wanted a good takeaway from this story that, uh, you know, you probably don't want to, you know, spend that money before you, it hits the bank account? Yeah, we, we try to eliminate the surprises as much as possible with our process. But uh, there's so many unknowns, so many variables, so many third parties that uh, could throw a wrench in the deal. So, so I'm just kind of curious uh, for this particular entrepreneur that you're dealing with uh he obviously joined a large national you know franchise system in the fitness world uh what did he retire did he go on to his next thing or what 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 happened yeah no he he actually went on uh i know he he likes the franchise model so he got into a couple other franchise uh models i know he always wanted to develop so i believe he he purchased and started from scratch a Dairy Queen. Dairy Queen has real estate, so that's probably what excited him about that. Yeah, so he moved out of state, bought a parcel of land and and built from scratch a Dairy Queen and and uh, I hear from him every now and then doing doing well. Uh and then he got into another franchise uh We Buy Ugly Homes or, or something like that. I 
I'm not too familiar with that brand. Well, that's interesting. Um, a lot of folks like the franchise model because there are systems involved and there's a brand that's already been developed and they don't have to start from scratch completely. Uh, so a lot of, uh, you know, individuals that, uh, like to start things like to have kind of a head start and use the franchise model as their kind of their platform. So, but in this particular case, I'm glad that he was able to afford his Ferrari and actually do some other stuff with the proceeds from his sale. So that's great. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So how about another transaction here that, um, you know, had its moments and, uh, didn't go as smoothly as the franchisee wanted? Yeah. So there was, uh, uh, a, another transaction, another a fitness center as well. We had a, our seller, there were three partners. There was the one main partner that started, uh, started and he got in with the brand when they were under a hundred units. Now they're over, you know, several thousand units. Uh, this was back in 2018. He contacted me. So what, what did these other partners do? He had, he had the, the kind of the founding partner that, you know, started acquiring fitness centers or opening them up anyway. Uh, who were his other partners? What did they deal in? So one of, one of the partners, uh, was a guru, guru of personal training. So he handled that part of the business and the other partner handled the, uh, acquisition of some of the clubs and the build out. So he handled a lot of the build out of these clubs because they grew it from one unit to 19 units. Uh, they contacted us and at first they weren't sure what they wanted to do. At first they wanted to just sell nine of their clubs, five in this area of, of the state and uh, up in the Midwest. And then there were another four in a different state. So do you find, just, just to ask a question here, do you find this is uh, typical that you get, uh, you know, folks that start uh, with several units and grow them in this case, three partners growing, each doing their own separate things uh, in the business model that they're expanding, that they develop it out to 19 separate locations. Is that kind of typical or is that kind of unusual in the franchise space? It's, it's kind of typical. A lot of, the, well, a lot of the, a lot of them are onesies, twosies. They just have a few units, but I've, I've been to multi-unit franchising conferences where there's guys out there with 800 units of various brands. So it's a, it's a mix, but it's not uncommon for one or several partners that, that will have multi-units and they'll contact us up and, and say, hey, it's, you know, they either want to sell several or, or they want to sell everything and, and move on to other brands or they're buying into other brands and trying to build build uh, their empire. So it's kind of typical for, let's say, this particular individual had 19 fitness centers. It's not unusual for someone like that to actually buy another brand, not even associate with fitness centers because they like the franchise model. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot of people like the franchise model because of that process and procedure that that the, the franchisors already developed. So I, I they didn't really know what they wanted to do when they originally reached out to you, but they I guess eventually decided they wanted to sell all nineteen. They did. They they ended up probably six eight months into it. Decided uh, let's let's sell everything. They were ready to to move on. Um. We, we put it on the market and we had a great response. Uh, we had a lot of quality buyers. We had one buyer that in particular uh, 
moved forward. We, we had the deal under contract and that he was going through as just a one, one man, uh, buying it, uh, had a corporate background and he started his due diligence. And I believe it was like a 45, maybe a 60 day due diligence. And he went through, he put them through the ringer. He, he hired a company. He spent over a hundred grand on an outside due diligence company just to go through due diligence. So what was, what was kind of the sales range as far as the sales price? Were we talking several million or tens of millions or what are we talking about? Yeah, this was, this was over 7 million, this particular transaction. And it, uh, he actually walked away from his hundred thousand plus in due diligence. So we had, we had a buyer at the table. He hired an outside firm. I think you said he spent $100,000 on actually going through the due diligence process and, you know, the, the 45, 60 days due diligence process. And if you have an outside firm, I can only imagine the, the hoops that the sellers had to go through to provide the, the oh, yeah. level and detail of due diligence because they want to justify their existence and what they're doing for their, for the buyer. So I would imagine that was pretty stressful. <laughs> it, it was. It was. It's. It's stressful for everybody, uh, especially the sellers, because they're still trying to run the business as well, and having to. Uh, you know, fortunately, they had a controller in place uh, that helped provide a lot of the detail that we needed. But this particular party, he he walked away. But it wasn't. We had multiple offers on the on the table. We were soon able to get it back under contract within weeks if not days. Uh, and that buyer ended up going through with the deal. Now, I do remember it was it was the day of closing. And like I said, it was over a $7 million deal. The, the, uh, and I didn't tell the seller this at the time, but the buyer, I found out the night before closing that the buyer had contacted the lender and wanted to renegotiate the terms wanted a, a better interest rate. And at the time, the lender basically, this was like at midnight because they were out in California time. So midnight, our time. And the lender basically said, Hey, uh, it is what it is, you know, take it or leave it. And that's where they left it. So the lender contacted me at midnight and I didn't share that with the seller. I didn't want to stress him out anymore because he was already going through the ringer. Uh, so I didn't tell the sellers that at the time, but the end it ended up the next day went to closing and and everybody signed off and i always remember this text that i received from the seller because even without knowing all that information that all these details were going on he texted me after everybody signed off before he received his wire from the bank he sent me a text and it just said getting anxious john and it always struck me how how much anxiety it must these sellers go through uh there's, there's, a, I always describe it as a roller coaster of a ride. There's a lot of ups and downs, especially on this deal. It was over a year that it took to get to the closing table, but we ended up, he, he got his, he got his wire and everything, everything worked out well. So what would you say, you know, as you've reflected on this transaction, as the deal sort of came together, what would be the, the big takeaway for, for this transaction? I think the big takeaway is it's a roller coaster of a ride. There's a lot of ups and downs. And even as he stated in a testimonial to us, he mentioned that we were a perfect mix of a business broker, financial analyst, analyst, and, and therapist at times. And really, you know, we were 
we were his uh we were their their counselor their their confidant you know in the moment uh you know we're there to help not just bring qualified buyers but also bring them comfort we understand the process we've been through it with many other sellers so we can we can help talk talk the the parties off the ledge at the time when needed and we can help counsel them all right uh we're going to take a little break here we'll be back with john in a few minutes here so we'll see you in a few as we listen to some of the exit stories from john today if you want to find out more on how to double the amount of money you put into your pocket when you sell your business, I have a free download that will outline the steps you need to do in order to accomplish this. To get your download, go to www.businessexitstories.com forward slash double to get your copy. All right, we're back here with John. And John, why don't we uh, chat about a couple of transactions that uh, had their interesting twists and turns, but yet turned out okay. So why don't you share the next transaction with us here today? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And this is kind of how I got into franchising is uh, I was working with a, a company called Johnny Rockets years ago, and they flew into our office. And a, a lot of franchisors, they have, let, let's say at this at this time, they had probably three or 400 units. Uh, most of them were franchisee owned. But in this particular case, they had several dozen that were franchisor owned. So it was actually the, the company that they hired their own managers and, and they staffed them. And they, it's usually, you know, the, the franchisors, their niche is growing units. So they start from scratch uh, or they, they find operators to start from scratch. So they typically don't have uh, a resale arm or don't specialize in that. So they hired us to, uh, go out and we had probably two dozen locations across the country that they were looking for owner operators. They wanted to, they knew that, uh, they knew that an owner operator would, could replace uh, and outperform that company manager. And most of them did. Most of them, they increased uh, 20% in revenues. So it was a, a, a definite opportunity for the, the franchisor to do this. So we helped them in, in one particular case down in Southwest Florida, the buyer was an, it was an existing, uh, it was actually a former McDonald's franchisee that he came in and he didn't want just the one restaurant that we we're selling. He wanted an area, he wanted an area development. He wanted to grow it and have more than just one restaurant. So we were able to help, uh, help him acquire this one location in, I believe it was in Estero, Florida. And he bought uh, two more territories, so he was able to open up two two additional territories, so he could have three locations. So it's kind of interesting, you know, when you talk about different brands, franchise brands out there. The brands are really focused on you know growing the brand and expanding into new territories. Do you find it's not unusual for franchise companies not to have a great you know, in-depth uh, drive or 
focus on the resale process for those franchisees that have been in business for a decade or two and kind of want to move on and, and retire or whatever the circumstances may be. Do you find that, uh, you know, franchisors sometimes don't do as good a job as they do on opening new units? Is that kind of a, a pattern that you see in the industry? Yeah, I, I would say that's a fair statement that they may have a staff in place, but again, most of them are incentivized, even the franchisor incentivized to open new units. And that's that's what that's that's why they're there to grow the brand from a hundred units to a thousand units or you know two thousand units to five thousand units. So they're outgrowing the brand. Uh, yes, uh, oftentimes the the franchisees, if they want to sell, uh, they typically contact the franchisor first, and they really don't understand what other options they have. They don't know that they can go outside. Uh, and find uh, a local broker or, or somebody like us that can help them walk them through the process that has the system in place and the process in place and and understands all the details to help prevent them from making the mistakes that uh, many of them make. So in this case where you talked about a McDonald's franchisee that uh, was running his you know franchise locations, uh, expanded outside of McDonald's into another fruit brand, in this case, Johnny Rockets. Uh, is that kind of traditional? Are there a lot of larger franchisees out there that have multiple brands? Yeah, yeah. I just came back from a conference last week that uh, uh, one family company owns 30 McDonald's and 35 Arby's and, and uh, 100 and I don't know how many uh batteries plus and ups stores uh i go to the multi-unit franchising conferences and there will be you know individual you know just one man bands that own over 800 locations 800 different uh 800 units of they might have you know half a dozen brands within them that's kind of interesting is that relatively a new development you've been in the franchise space now for a number of years is that something that uh, is more of a recent development, or has that been going on forever? I think it's. I think it's been going on forever. Uh, there are there are some brands that you know they just have onesies and twosies here, uh, uh, but it's a mix. I think there's a lot of a lot of franchisees, a lot of business owners want to diversify and not just have all their eggs in one basket. So they'll they'll get into other brands as well. We get a lot of a lot of the buyers that contact us as well. Will say, hey, you know, uh, I'm in this brand, but I'm also in. I, you know, I'm looking for this other brand, or they'll ask us what brands are out there. And so these uh, larger franchisees that acquire multiple brands, I guess they would be specifically interested in not necessarily starting from scratch, but also acquiring existing locations and being able to really apply their scale. To maybe even stepping up the ability to generate more profit than an individual franchisee could buy. Yeah, could do. yeah, absolutely. They already have the back office uh, to help, and it's uh, you know they can add on another dozen, couple dozen units, and uh, it's it's uh, the numbers make sense for them. 
All right. Well, give me a, you know, along this line, when we're talking about franchise resales, you mentioned that a lot of franchisees out there will actually contact the franchisor and say, you know, I'm ready to sell. And, and they think that's kind of the process. So give me another story along those lines of a franchisee that, you know, kind of did that. Uh, and how that transaction kind of went. Yeah, yeah. So we get calls uh, every week from franchisees from various brands. And the franchisors, typically they do have a resale process or a resale program, they call it, in-house. Uh, but it's, again, it's not their niche. It's not their, it's not their passion like ours. Uh, and it's, they're not incentivized to, to do it. And that incentivize, when you talk about that, why is that? Because again, the, the growth of the company is, you know, if you think about the franchisor high level, most franchisors are focused. If they have 500 units, they want to grow to a thousand. So, and they get paid, uh, you know, sometimes 25, 50,000, hundred thousand per unit when they sell a new unit. And they want to grow from 500 to 1,000. They don't want to focus on the 500 that they're already in there and in place. They don't want to focus on helping them sell to another one because they're already getting their their royalties on those 500 units. Well, that sort of makes sense, you know, where you have a situation where it's all about growing the brand and being in more locations, and that's their main focus. It's not that I don't think they don't want to help the existing franchisee because they do have resale programs in place. They probably don't do as great a job as for someone that specializes in resales like you do. So talk about a, a specific transaction where you dealt with a franchisee that had worked with the franchise or franchise or to sell his unit and it wasn't yeah, going yeah. all that well. We get often calls from these franchisees and and some will say, hey, we've been on the market for a year, some for two years. Well, I've had others that have been on the market for 10 years. Uh, but this one in particular, they had been on the market for two years. And I didn't realize this until afterwards, but uh, we had we had that we found the buyer within eight days and we had it under contract within 12. So we have a franchisee that was working with a franchisor and uh, had been on the market and he'd been trying to sell it for a couple of years, uh, wasn't having any success, found out about you, called you up, and within 12 days from you engaging with him, you had a contract to sell his unit? Correct. And, and tell me a little bit about why you're able to do that so quickly where a franchisor uh, wasn't having much success. I mean, they obviously get a lot of people that are inquiring about buying new units and expanding. I think it comes down to three things. What I call our, our product, our, our software, uh, what I refer to as our, our process and, and the people. So talk a little bit about that, you know, for our audience out there, you're dealing with a specialist like you that works only in resale, you say you have a software platform. And what does that do? What, you know, maybe uh, it doesn't sound like a lot of franchisors since that isn't their main focus. They probably have that type of process for their expansion franchises, but not necessarily perhaps for their resale franchises. I guess that's what you're kind of alluding to. Yes, we've been working on this for 15 years, developing the software to make this crazy resale process more efficient. So uh, if, if there's 200 steps in the resale process, a lot of it can be automated. And 
uh, and we have a whole team that can work on it. So with the software, we can bring in the team approach and we can help automate the process. One of the, one of the, I break it down into five steps. Step number one is what I call seller profile. And I always tell sellers the most important step is step number one, the seller profile. That's where we package the business. So before we can even go out and try to find the buyers, we need to package the business because when a, when a buyer, if we get 100 buyers that are looking at this, uh, they could waste a lot of time with the sellers because they want to know what the business is benefiting. And one of the first things we do is we have a credit underwriter that will help go into the financials, into those tax returns, and be able to calculate what the business benefits year after year. Uh, most, most business owners, uh, all business owners, minimize that profit on their tax return for tax purposes. So it's our job to package the business and show a buyer what the EBITDA is and what the SDE is, the seller's discretionary earnings, what that owner benefits. Uh, once we have that, then we, we finalize the package. We can share it with lenders in our network. So if we have a million-dollar franchise, uh, now, now the buyer doesn't need a million dollars cash to come into the business. They could possibly get in with as little as 10% down, and that just opens up the doors to more buyers. And that's, that's our job. Our job is to maximize that buyer pool. That's one of the ways we do it. The other way is just with our platform. We have, a, a, I call it a matching mechanism. So if we get a new seller in Orlando, Florida, we can go out and we can see that we have, you know, we might have 500 buyers already looking for that particular franchise in that area. And we can instantly notify those buyers once we go to market. Well, that sounds like a very efficient process. So in this particular case, it sounds like that within 12 days, I assume that that transaction closed and it was a good result for that owner. I, I presume that he was pretty happy after being trying to sell his franchise for quite some time. Yeah, yeah. We went under contract in 12 days. We found the buyer in eight days, went under contract in 12, and then it's usually a process to, to get it closed. We have to get approvals from the franchisor and go through that. Well, let's talk a little bit about that uh, approval from a franchisor. What is the franchisor approving? So every franchisor needs to approve the buyer. So just as the buyer gets approved by the seller, we need to get them approved by the franchisor, the lender, and the, and the landlord. Uh, they have their own approval process. They typically look at uh, the business owner's experience. Uh, they obviously look at their liquidity and their net worth. Uh, but we, we collect all of that in profiles on the buyer in our platform. So one of the first things we're going to do is we're going to find out when we package the business, we're going to find out what those requirements are so we can find qualified buyers. We don't want to go to a franchisor and with a, an unqualified buyer. Well, this has been a fascinating uh, discussion here today, John. You've brought a little bit different orientation to the podcast here where you're talking you know, about the specific vertical of franchising and the kind of the unusual kind of circumstances and different types of franchise owners out there that have multiple brands and what the requirements are for franchise companies to approve those uh, new franchisees that are coming into the system and buying an existing unit. It's been a really interesting discussion here for our audience out there to get a little bit different orientation. And I, I would admit, you know, as I hear what you're discussing and a lot of our other guests that have been on the program here, uh, the same principles apply whether you are 
a smaller business or a large scale business with uh, hundreds of employees or a few dozen employees or even smaller. It's the same principles that apply. A buyer is going to be interested in the profitability. He's going to be interested in, uh, you know, what the goodwill that's been created and how efficiently the, the business is operating, whether you're a franchise or a non-franchise business. So John, it's been delightful to have you here on the podcast as a guest. Would you? Uh, just t- share a little bit about how people can reach out and uh, get a hold of you if they want to chat with you. Oh yeah, absolutely. They can they can go straight to our website at any time at franchiseclearly.com. Uh, we've got a great blog out there. We write uh, articles every month. Uh, they can contact me directly at four zero seven four two one zero seven seven two. They can even text me on that line. Uh, or they can email me directly at John, J-O-N, no H, just J-O-N dot Franz, F-R-A-N-Z, at franchiseclearly.com. Oh, it's been delightful. We'll look forward to chatting with you. So this is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.